0: i hope you all enjoyed that as much as i did that was great michael thank you i especially watched enjoyed and smiled for a long time because i i watched him race up to the aisle trying to meet the second clock as as it was counting down for us to get the camera on so that was fun to jump right into that and i i don't know how you could have been watching that at home and not had your feet moving along with it that, that was fantastic So if you have your Bible like Michael referred to, if you have your Bible, it'd be great if you would go to uh, John chapter 11, and um, I'm going to have to take this off apparently because it's starting to crackle already. Those of you who have been a new hope, you've heard that before. So John chapter 11, if you would turn there, and you're also going to want to go to the book of Luke and the book of Matthew if you get a chance to do that. So primarily John chapter 11. So apparently we got some audio. I'll keep going though. So I want to pray with you before we get any uh, any further into this. Let's pray, especially for the technology right now. Apparently there's going to be a crackling mic throughout this service. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what Palm Sunday represents. I thank you for the reality that it's a celebration and that we can see you in a way that we haven't always seen you, that you show things about yourself that are true in the midst of this story. God, I pray that you would illuminate our minds, because many times we're prone to not see you as the one who's in control and one who's in authority, but rather see you as one who fixes our problems or our, our miracle worker. But I pray for every single person who's dialed in right now that we would be focused on the reality that you reign and you reign no matter what, and you have authority over all things and that you have a plan and that you're working your plan. Nothing catches you by surprise. So God, I ask that you'd be at work now and that you would cause us to see you in a way that perhaps might be new for some of us. I pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. When I was a child, I was taught a um, uh, child prayer that we said at the dinner table every. Derek? <laughs> okay. Hang on, you guys, for just a minute. Bear with us for the technology. You want me to go with that microphone? Okay. So we're going to do this the old-fashioned way, apparently. Okay, so here's the prayer I was taught as a child. The prayer goes like this. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. By His hands, we all are fed. Let us thank Him for our bread. I, I bet if we could do a show of hands, we could see people all over the auditorium right now that would say, yeah, I remember that when I did that one. Or maybe you're teaching that to your kids at home. We, we learned it by rote memory as children. I would tell you as a child i failed to really understand the greatness of God. And as an adult, I vastly misunderstand, I would say, underestimate the greatness of our God. He is great, and His greatness goes beyond my understanding. Passages like we're about to dive into in John chapter 11 are so helpful to me To process this information and I would tell you church it gives me a lot of security a lot of security to be reminded that God has a plan and God's working his plan and he says if I belong to him he's working his plan for good meaning for my good if I belong to him if I'm called according to his purpose during times like this with what's going on in our world right now I'm personally tempted to lean into my own understanding. I'm tempted to fall back into this position of thinking I could figure things out if I had to. But God says, no, trust me in the midst of that. So when things are not going according to our way of understanding, that's when I find myself in this place where I have to step back and just let God be God, because he's always working a plan. And he says, I've been working this plan for all of eternity. And I have a plan that things are going to work out for good. The reality is, though, many times those plans are counter to my way of thinking. Martin Luther said that during the 1500s when the Black Plague was sweeping across Europe, that he found himself in that place where people were constantly approaching him and saying, Dr. Luther, do you think that God's still in control? Dr. Luther, do you really think that God's working things together for good? Because as you might remember from the Black Plague, 30% of Europe died. 30% of Europe perished as a result of the Black Plague. Far more than what we see going on in our world today. And that caused people to go to that place to think that God's not in control. Let me show you Romans 8.28. Perhaps this is new to you, but just look with me on the screen. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Check this to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. I wonder if you've heard that verse more times in the last three weeks than you've heard it in the last three years. And now you find yourself wondering if it's true. Is that real? That God's at work in all situations? Even if I'm confused by what's going on? I'll be asking you today throughout this passage, do you believe God? And I'm not asking if you believe in God. Anybody can do that. The Bible says that even the demons believe in God. I'm asking, do you believe God? Do you believe God when he commits to you and makes a promise? The difference between a Christ follower and someone who does not believe in Jesus, anyone else, the difference between those two is that you believe God. So I'll be asking you this morning, do you believe God? To believe him means you trust him. You trust him in all circumstances, especially the hard times, that he's working a plan and that he's causing all things to work together for good. Do you trust him with that? Now, Paul said what he said in Romans 8.28, and he follows it up in Romans 8.32 with the reason why you can trust God this morning. Let me put verse 32 for you up on the screen. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. So that's God's way of communicating to you. I demonstrated my great love for you and my care for you and my plan for you to the degree that I gave you my own son. So, how would I not freely take care of you, give you all things? And he's not talking about materially there, like give you a new car, although he takes care of us materially as well. But he takes care of the bigger issues first and foremost. So if you find yourself looking at these current events and you wonder, is God still working? Like people ran up to Dr. Luther in the 1500s and saying, is God still at work? Well, yes. Yes, he is. I do believe that God is still at work, causing all things to work together for good for those who love God. Yes, emphatically, yes. So in John 11 this morning, in John 12, you're going to see Jesus as the King who is in control like right now, in control. Not like he used to be in control, but he's in control right now. So I hope that you end this service by saying, you reign, Lord Jesus. You reign and you're worthy of all my praise. You're working all things together for good, even if I presently cannot understand it. So I ask you to go to John chapter 11, and here's the background on what's going on here. Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. And there's a a plot going on, a backroom plan, and the plan is to do away with Jesus. Follow with me in John chapter 11. It starts in verse 47, and then we'll transition over to chapter 12. John chapter 11, 47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the him is Jesus. If you had an inside view of a backroom of politics, this is what it would look like. Mind you, Jesus is raising the dead. There's dead people who are now walking, and their concern is, how do we hold on to our political power? How do we keep the prestige and the fame and the money? How do we keep all of that? So there's this underlying current. We need to eliminate Jesus. We need to get Him gone, because now there's a dead guy walking around, and his name is Lazarus. And mind you, I mean four days he was dead. If you haven't read it before, go to John chapter 9, and you can read the story. But in John chapter 9, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after four days in the ground. And we're not talking about a zombie here. We're talking about a person who is living, breathing, drawing oxygen, completely restored by Jesus. And the response is, many believe. Because Lazarus' resurrection is indisputable evidence of who Jesus is. So the forces for Jesus and the forces against Jesus, they're crystallizing. And the national leaders are alarmed to the degree that the Pharisees are electrified into action. But they're not going to act on their own. They're part of a ruling party. The Sadducees are in power also. And the Sadducees are actually the majority, and so they need a coalition of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And so the chief priests who are from the Sadducees, they form a council of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is like the Supreme Court. They're the rulers of the day, and and they lead the nation. And they decide to convene a council, as you just saw there in those verses. These guys don't get along, but they have a common enemy, and their common enemy is Jesus. They hate Jesus, and so they got one item on their agenda. What do we do about Him? Go back to verse 48. We just read that. Look, look one with me fully at that on the screen now, John eleven forty-eight. If we let Him go on like this, all men will believe in Him. That's where we stopped. Pick it up, the remainder. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You find it really subtle that Jesus' greatest enemies, His most bitter enemies, do not deny the miracles. They know that they're too real. They can't deny them. It's absolutely convincing proof of the authenticity of what Jesus did. But what they know is that Rome, both of them understand that Rome... And Pilate, especially, has a capacity for ruthlessness. And Rome will not tolerate any insurrection whatsoever. Now, they both have a complete misunderstanding. Jesus has zero interest in political ambitions, he has no interest in becoming an earthly king, not the way they think. There's no intention whatsoever. But they are confused about his intentions. So we see in verse 49, Caiaphas says this. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, verse 50, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Uh, Caiaphas was appointed high priest in 16 A.D. He was deposed in 36 A.D. His father in law was high priest before him. That's why it makes verse 49 so very, very interesting. It says he was high priest that year. See, the high priest was supposed to serve for life according to God's commands, but Rome had politicized the office. And they had put people in power according to their liking. When they didn't like someone, they removed them frequently from office. Well, that would happen to Caiaphas. But in the first century at this period of time, he is the high priest, and he has this opening remark, You know nothing at all. That's representative of his character. It's not intended to win friends. It's actually typical of the rudeness of this ruling party known as the Sadducees. Let me show you Josephus' quote from the first century. He was a historian that was hired by Rome, and this is what Josephus said. The behavior of the Sadducees, one toward another, is in some degree wild, and their conduct with those who are of their own party is as barbarous as if they were strangers to them. Now here's what's going on. Caiaphas is frustrated. He's frustrated by the indecision. And he proposes this ruthless solution, which is in keeping with his character. He says it's expedient that one person should die. So his view, catch this, church, his view is that Jesus should die so that the whole nation doesn't perish. And he's right. Without Jesus, we would all perish. But he didn't realize he was speaking prophetically watch how John gives commentary on this verse 51 now he did not say this on his own initiative but being high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad watch how John sums this up verse 53 so from that day on they planned together to kill him. That's a really impressive footnote that John just gave us there. He said that Caiaphas didn't say this on his own. It doesn't mean that he was forced. It doesn't mean that God manipulated him. It doesn't mean that he's a robot. He's responsible for his own words. He's responsible for his own thoughts, his own actions. Rather, this is what it means. God invested in his words meaning which Caiaphas did not intend, meaning that God used. God allowed the ruthless actions to be part of his bigger plan. These ruthless actions are just part of Caiaphas' personality because God has a plan and he's working a plan, and it's a much bigger plan, so he allows those words to be used. Even the words of a corrupt politician can be shaped and used by God. Charles Spurgeon said this in 1895 about how God uses human nature. Look with me at this on the screen. Man, with his breath of threatening, is but blowing the trumpet of the Lord's eternal fame. Keep going with that. The devil blows the fire and melts the iron, and then the Lord fashions it for his own purposes. It's beautiful. Nobody speaks that way anymore today. But look at the way that Spurgeon said that. We understand what's going on here. They've made the decision to kill him. And the decision was made well before the arrest, well before the trial. The trial then, therefore, is a total sham. He's already been sentenced. And they issue a warrant for his arrest. So now we get this detail from John. And I just want you to keep reading the verses with me as they come up on the screen. It gives you the background. John 11, verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So right there's the arrest warrant. They've issued the arrest warrant for Jesus. And we told in verse 55 that many are going up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, to purify themselves. It doesn't mean there's a bunch of Purell bottles sitting around so they can all wash their hands like we find ourselves doing today. He's talking about a ceremonial washing, and it took a long, long time to do this. A cleansing. And there's a lot of people in town, so it would take them a long time to process this. But the reason they had to do it, it was required by law. It was required by law in God's word. And and so Jerusalem was very, very crowded because it's the time of the Passover. So they find themselves standing around. They've got a lot of time on their hands, and they're saying, what do you think? You think he's actually going to show up? Is he going to show himself inside the capital city? I'm, I'm struck as I read through John chapter 11 and John chapter 12 how steadfast God is toward you. How steadfast he is toward me. How steadfast he is towards accomplishing his plans. Steadfast is just a way of saying he's determined. He's determined that no thing will prevent his plans from being accomplished. Because God has a plan and he's working a plan. He accomplishes all of his purposes even when you're confused by the circumstances. The writers of the Old Testament said it this way. In Psalm 86, David recorded this. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Steadfastness is part of his nature. It's his character. His very nature is to do everything he declares that he will do. And the truth is, only God can declare that. There's a lot of things that I declare that I would do. There's probably a lot of things that you declare you would do, and we never do them. We say we're going to do them, but we don't actually get it done. God says, if I say it, I'm going to do it. Now, Luke gives us some more detail. I said you might want to go to Luke as well. And Luke in chapter 18 gives us some more detail about these events, especially about the final approach to Jerusalem. What we find is that Jesus is stepping aside. He's on his way, but he's just stepping off to the side out of the view of the crowd and having a private conversation with the 12. Let me take you to that conversation. Luke chapter 18 and verse 31. Then he took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished he's going to elaborate on what he's talking about now, but it's it's exactly what Michael was just talking about when he said, we're going to celebrate Good Friday this coming Friday. And the reason we would, we'll use this uh, thought of the word celebrate, maybe commemorate is better, because of what Jesus is about to describe here. He's going to describe what's going to be done to him. So church, if, if you're, really drinking this in, process that Jesus is declaring this next phrase. Watch it really closely in Luke 18. Luke 18, 31 through 33. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now, post resurrection, like in 2020, or even a month after the resurrection, you'd look at that and say, Well, that couldn't have been more specific. That is so clear. He's saying exactly what he's planning to have accomplished. But Luke gives us this insight in verse 34. He said, But the disciples understood none of these things. Check this, church. All the warning lights are going off. God's put himself on display, and they don't get it. See, they think he's going to deliver them from Rome, but Jesus did not come to deliver them from Rome. He did not come to make that kind of delivery, not the delivery that they're anticipating. Jesus came as the deliverer. He came to save us from sin, but he also came to fulfill prophecy so right now, I need to go down two rabbit trails with you. And I'm not sure if it's a rabbit trail if I tell you in advance that it's a rabbit trail, but I'm going to rabbit trail with you. So bear with me as I set up some details so you understand why they should have got what was going on, why they should have picked up on all of these warning signals that Jesus is giving them. Here's the first one. 500 years before Jesus walks the planet, there's a man on the planet by the name of Daniel. And you can read about Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 9 specifically gives some insight into the things that Jesus is referring to here. In Daniel chapter 9, you find that God shows up and He gives Daniel a calendar, a time clock, if you will, and He's very specific. And God marks out how you can know on the calendar when the Messiah will actually arrive. And it begins with the Persian king by the name of Artaxerxes. God says this to Daniel. Daniel, when Artaxerxes issues a decree to begin rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, you're going to be able to count down from that clock to the time when Jesus actually will arrive, the Messiah he referred to. And unknowingly, Artaxerxes did that very thing, and he set God's clock, God's time clock in motion so that 483 years later, you can actually track from Daniel chapter 9 to the arrival of the Messiah. So let me give you a verse. This is that first rabbit trail. Bear with me now. This is that verse in which the angel shows up and begins talking to Daniel. And he says this to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. No one understand this. This is Gabriel speaking. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Anointed One, that's Jesus, until the Messiah comes, until the Anointed One, the Ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you might be wondering, what in the world is he talking about? And even if you're familiar with the Bible, you might be looking at it and thinking, I'm not sure I get that. In the Bible, sevens represents years. And so if you put 62 together with seven, what do you have? You have 69. The angel is saying at the end of 483 years, the anointed one will appear. Why did he do that? Because God wanted everyone to know that he's working a plan, that he has a plan Let me put this image up for you on the screen. 69 times 7. Some of you at home right now, you've got your phones. Maybe you're watching it that way. Pull up the calculator on your phone. Do 69 times 7. You'll find it's 483. 483 years. Catch this. Next slide. King Artaxerxes I, in 5457 BC, issues the decree to Ezra. You can check this in the historical records. He issues a decree to Ezra to begin rebuilding the walls. From 457 BC to 27 AD is exactly the precise numbers of 483 years. What's so big about 27 AD? that's the precise date for jesus appearance as the messiah when he is anointed when he's baptized and comes up out of the water and god says behold my son in whom i'm well pleased allow three years for his earthly work and in 30 a.d he's cut off so go back and read daniel chapter 9 later today when you get a chance and you'll see that for yourself here's one thing on this first rabbit trail that's undeniably clear Jesus is the only possible fulfillment of God's timetable. Now here's rabbit trail number two, and it's much, much shorter. Rabbit trail number two that you need to understand is that Jerusalem at this period of time during Palm Sunday, it's Passover time. And Passover time is celebrating what? It's celebrating the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. For us, it's like Independence Day. It's when we look back and we, we understand that the United States declared independence from Great Britain. Well, that was their Independence Day, their Passover Day. It's, it's like the final four and Independence Day all rolled into one. It was the delight of the Jews. But it was the despair of Rome. They had to put extra guards on duty because from all over the known world, people would travel to Jerusalem because their hearts were filled with excitement. Once a year, they got to do this celebration of Passover. So the population of the city, it swells up. So Rome has to put extra guards on duty. Now, let's bring those two rabbit trails together. Lazarus' miracle, the the news of Lazarus being raised from the dead, it's already drawing a very, very large crowd. And, And now you have Passover celebration to add to it. So watch with me, back in John now, John chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, meaning Passover feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, They took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. When it says the next day in verse 12 there, it's talking about the day after the supper that had just been celebrated in Bethany. They threw a big dinner for Jesus because Lazarus had been raised from the dead And people were standing around saying, do you think he's going to go? Do you think he'll actually go to Jerusalem? And there's lots of chattering in the streets the next day because now people are saying, he's coming. He's actually coming. Now, just as a side note, that night before the night of that dinner, that's when Judas snuck out to betray Jesus. He actually sold Jesus five days in advance. What we think of as Thursday night when the arrest took place, that was just the transaction being consummated. But on Sunday night, that's when he traded him for the pieces of silver. Why? What's going on in the background here? Well, the leaders of Israel, they're afraid of the reaction. They want Jesus dead. But not during the Passover. Their plan is to execute him after the people have been dispersed. But Jesus kind of forces their hand... In verse 12, we're told there's a really large crowd. And the people are totally disregarding the social distancing that the Pharisees have asked for. They're they're not paying any attention whatsoever. They want them to turn Jesus in, and they're instead pouring out of the city to see Jesus. So you have this convergence now of two huge crowds one that's been there to see Lazarus, the dead man walking, and the other that's there for the Passover, and it's fueled by the resurrection of Lazarus, and together they form this massive throng. Matthew 21.9 gives you the insight. It said, the crowd's going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. So they've got the palm branches. The, the reason they're doing that is we think of our flag, our stars and stripes today. They didn't have that. What they used were palm branches for waving. It was an indication of celebration and of victory. So they're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. What are they doing? Well, they're quoting Psalm 118. Every good Jew who went to the Passover understood the Passover celebration was the place where they would hear the Hallel. If they went to the temple in the morning, just before the sacrifices were made, they would hear the choir at the temple singing the Hallel. Let me show that to you. Psalm 118, verse 25, it says this. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Just stop right there for a minute. O Lord, do save, it started with. That's the word yasha. This word you see up on your screen. It's in your notes also, if you've downloaded your notes this morning. Yasha means to be safe, defend, deliver. So we use the word Hosanna today as a praise name. But Hosanna is an interpretation of more of an English version of Yasha. Yasha Yasha-na. That's the Hebrew way of saying it. And in Hebrew it means save us now. The crowd doesn't realize that they're escorting the very one who is the Savior. Catch this. They're telling the Savior to save. Save us, Savior. Save us now. Now, along the way, Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead of him. Let me show you that on the screen. Matthew 21.1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage of the Mount of Olives... Then Jesus sent two disciples. See, there's still a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And he takes two disciples and he breaks them off from the group. And he sends them ahead to make some arrangements. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Uh, we just talked about Daniel a moment ago. That 500 years earlier, he wrote specifically the details, 483 years, of when you would know that the Messiah would arrive. Well, also around the same time frame, 500 years earlier, was another prophet, a true prophet. One who would say in detail the things that God was doing. And the reason I emphasize that is because there's a lot of people out there trying to be prophets today about what's going on around our planet. They're never specific. They're always generalist, and they're saying that they know things that are going on, and they begin citing Scripture out of context completely. What we see here are true prophets who are saying specifically the things that God revealed to them. Look at what Zechariah writes here, Zechariah 9.9. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Pause right there for just a moment. Your king is is coming to you." Sounds like majesty, sounds like strength, sounds like prestige, right? Until you finish the passage out. Let's keep going with it. Start where we just did, Zechariah 9.9. 9. "'Shout and triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Even a colt, the foal of a donkey, 500 years earlier. How did Zachariah know to write that? Remember, church, God has a plan. God's working His plan. He's working all things together for good. Now, if you're honest, and I think you're probably like me, isn't it difficult to think of a king riding a donkey? Like, I want him on a stallion. I want him on a white horse, 15 hands high. That would be prestige. We'll we'll come back to that in just a minute. See, Jesus knew prophecy. He wrote the book, right? So Jesus knows the details. He made arrangements for this specific day. He understood exactly what this would be. Because God has a plan, and God's working His plan. Matthew gives us some more detail, and Matthew says this in Matthew 21, verse 8. Most of the crowds spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. You want to get the attention of the Roman soldiers? Just start doing that. You want the eyes of the leadership of Israel to pay attention? Start doing that. Every eye is focused on him. Luke adds more detail. Go with me to Luke 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Michael was just talking about the celebration, and and indeed it was celebration. People waving the palm branches. People are shouting for joy. But what's going on here? What a contrast to the celebration. Finish out the verse. Luke 19, 41, here's the rest of it. Jesus saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. What's happening here, church? Why is God crying when everyone else is celebrating? God sees what's really going on. He knows what's unfolding, what's going to happen as a result of people seeing him as nothing more than enigma. They they think he's the easy button, and if they hit the easy button, he'll save them from all the strife and all the frustrations with Rome. All their present circumstances will be evaporated if they just make Jesus their king. The real issue is not Rome and it's not disease, and it's not sickness, and it's not their financial problems that are surrounding them. It's sin, but because they want a political solution, Jesus says to them, you don't know, you don't get it. You don't see what's right in front of you. God's in front of them with a cure for a virus that has infected everyone. And the virus is called sin. They need an authentic relationship with God. They need a genuine, real relationship. But most are going to reject, reject that in, in favor of an earthly solution, an earthly focus. So Jesus is forced to pronounce over them what will really happen, what their, their fate on earth will be. Look with me at the next verse, Luke nineteen forty three. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will cast a bank up a bank about you and surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground, and you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is as if God is saying, you think you have problems with Rome now? You have no idea. So he rides down the mountain to the city. It's just days before the crucifixion. And we're told that Jesus stops and cries. I want you to pay special attention to this. Because this is God's heart towards us. He cries over the people of the city. He's not crying over the buildings. He's not crying over the roads. He cries for the people. If you had only known. He weeps because you did not know the time, it says. You didn't pay attention to what's right in front of you. If you love history, go back and read about the siege on Jerusalem in 70 A.D., This is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Forty years later, Rome will lay siege and they will bring the 5th and the 12th and the 4th and the 10th legion and they will destroy Jerusalem and they will kill 600,000 people. Hear this. Jesus knows all of this is coming and he weeps because of the refusal. God has a plan. He's made his plan known. He's working his plan. You recall earlier I mentioned that Jesus sent out two of the disciples on ahead. Just 10 minutes ago I mentioned that. Look with me on the screen one more time. Matthew 21, 1. When they had approached Jerusalem, Jesus sent two disciples. That's when they were still a few miles outside of Jerusalem. He's arranging for a ride. He's sending them on ahead and it's a final deliberate act. Of self-disclosure for those with eyes to see because he's about to climb on a donkey and I need to help you understand what's going on here go back with me now to John 12 you'll see it on your screen John 12 verse 14 Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it as it is written fear not daughter of Zion behold your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt The very thing that Zechariah wrote 500 years earlier, Jesus is doing precisely that. This is a deliberate way of saying, here I am. Children I know that you've downloaded some of the artwork this morning. Your parents have probably done that for you and maybe you're drawing pictures of donkeys this morning at home. You put Jesus on that donkey and you could put him with his hand up saying, here I am. Here I am, pay attention. Meaning this is not a sudden spur-of-the-moment decision. All of history has been building to this moment in time. I want you to pay very careful attention. Take note of what's going on here. In the Middle East, a donkey is not looked down on. A donkey is regarded as noble in the first century especially. In the ancient world, when a king came into a city in peace, the king would come on a donkey. The crowd is not the only one who's failing to grasp what's going on here. Look with me on the screen, Luke or John 12:16. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written of him. And that they had done these things to him. It's not until the Holy Spirit arrives, after the resurrection of Jesus, after he's glorified, the disciples remember then. I am I am so struck this week by the sheer determination of our God to always accomplish his plans. Even when it looks like things around you are not going the way they're supposed to go, God has a plan and He's working a plan. And Jesus Himself sets in motion the chain of events that will lead to His death at the exact time foreordained in eternity past. It's only a few days later that the exact same crowd is going to totally reject Jesus. And the next time this king appears on the scene, It will be radically different, just as He fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy regarding the first coming, Jesus will come again. If you're here in the auditorium right now, I know I'd be hearing you say, amen. Jesus is coming again, but He's going to return the second time in judgment. So I've asked you to pay very careful attention to what He's doing with that donkey. Pay very careful attention to what is being communicated here. I said in the Middle East, a donkey is not regarded as something to be despised, it's noble. But here's the counter to that. Whenever a king rode to war, he would leave the donkey behind. A king would mount a war horse and came on a war horse and ride in great power, the white horse of a conqueror. Look with me on your screen. I know you're watching at home. Watch this. Revelation 1911. John's looking forward in time. The same John who wrote the story you've just read. And he writes about the same king. And he says, that king's going to be on a horse one day. Revelation nineteen eleven, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. That will be a scene of victory. That will be a conquering time over his enemies, and he will establish his kingdom. See, Jesus wants you to know this morning. He has a plan. He's working his plan. And he's working his plan for good. It's just that his timing is different than our timing. One of the more haunting scenes in the Bible is the scene you've just looked at. One of the most haunting sentences in the Bible is Luke 19.44. You did not know the time of your visitation. You know what that's telling me, Church? God sent out invitations way in advance. There's no one that had an excuse for not knowing. Many hundreds of years God said, I have a plan, I'm working a plan, this is part of a bigger plan, and it's a plan for good. But they were told that it would happen and given an exact time schedule, even how to recognize the king, and yet they say, that's not really fitting with our desires. Isn't there great irony in this church? It's, it's very ironic that this is often what happens in our generation. God has made Himself known. He sends out the invitation and the response from the world around us is, yeah, if He meets my expectations, if He comes in the way that I want Him to come, Jesus is deliberately saying this morning, pay attention. Here I am. Pay attention to this. Come to me. Even if you're confused by the things that are going on around you, God is at work and He's working His plan. He's working all things together for good if you belong to Him. If you don't belong to Him, things don't work out so good, they end poorly but if you belong to him, if you're called according to his purpose, all things are working together for good. So I want to I end with this thought and, and then close in prayer as Michael leads us in a couple more worship songs. I hope you stay dialed in for that. Our king is worthy of the worship. Hear this thought. From everlasting to everlasting, he's God. He's in control of all. God runs this universe. So when things are not going according to our way of understanding, that's when we step back. We have to let God be God. Let Him do what He's doing. Because He's always working a plan. And that plan many times runs counter to our thinking. Challenging you this morning with this thought, do you believe God? And I don't mean believe in God. I mean, do you believe God and trust him that he's working all these things together for good? Let's pray according to that way, that we trust him with his plan. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth that has come through so clearly in your word this morning, that you execute your plan even when it cost you everything, that, that it would cost you your son's life so that you would be able to redeem us. I praise you, Father, for that plan being a reality in my life and for the life of hundreds of people who are dialed in and watching right now that we can say together, we believe, God, we trust you, God, that you have a plan and that you're working your plan. And we look forward to that day when it will be for our eternal good. It may not be our immediate good according to the way we calculate things, but you're working a plan, Father, so we trust you with it. I just want to say in the way of praise and the way that we'll worship back to you now through songs that we do this because we recognize you are worthy of all the praise we can bring your direction and we believe you those of us who belong to you know that you've worked things according to your plan and for our good so we trust you with that I pray father that your peace would rest upon your people this week in a profound way especially for those who are dealing with extreme sickness in their homes right now those who are facing job loss those who have lost finances and those who have family members in hospitals right now God that we would trust you in the midst of this and that you would surround us with your peace I pray for that in the magnificent name of our soon coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.